Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And, most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show! I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Jim Cohn, coming to us from Colorado. He's a very interesting guy with a long association with the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa Institute. And he's done so many projects, we won't mention them all, but just say he founded the Museum of American Poetics. He did a film on Ann Waldman. He was a teaching assistant for Allen Ginsberg, and he's done some work, put out a couple of CDs of uh, poetry with music. He has a new book, Treasures for Heaven, Collected Poems, 1976 to 2021. It's a big, thick book of poetry from Giant Steps Press. And the book's dedicated to his daughter, Isabella Grace Cohn. So, Jim, I'm so glad you could do this. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Charlie. Okay, let me say now, uh, looking for a place to start with so much wonderful material, I came up with a statement on your Wikipedia page. If it doesn't lead us too far astray, we'll see what you have to say about this. Social sciences should be redefined thematically within the United States into a form of American karmic studies. Mm. Yeah, well, that was, a, you know, that was a dream poem. And I don't have too many dream poems. I never had a dream poem where, so I give Trump a Rinpoche, the uh, Vajudatu, uh, Buddhist founder of Naropa. Uh, I, I didn't have a connection with him. I wasn't a follower of his, but that's who channeled that poem into me. Uh, hmm. It comes after, I'm pretty sure that's hitting around 2001 hmm. with the uh, September 11 attacks. And Everybody who lived through that probably remembers that uh, George W. Bush uh, kind of rallied the country into an angry state to go to war and attack these people who uh, 
as far as we know, had no no uh, hand in the in uh, 9-11 events, um, set us into long wars there that we just walked away from with nothing. But yeah, I, I really think that American karmic studies would be an, a, a, at least a fascinating way to look at our foreign and domestic affairs uh, in academia. And it, it, just individually among people. What, well, what, what would that be? What, what would you do if you were? Well, I think, would, yeah, like you would look at uh, the origins of things, behaviors, uh, thoughts, mm. uh, actions, and uh, you would look at their consequences. And, mm. uh, I think the big thing around 9-11 was, of course, why do they hate us? I, I remember headlines like that, like, why do they hate us? And it wouldn't take much to figure that out. Uh, most people on the left probably understood intuitively why they hated us. Um, and I think if we looked at pe why people dislike us, uh, we would maybe look at ourselves to change as opposed from looking at the whole outside world to change to our needs. So you back up and get the big picture. I think you back up, you get the picture of this endless chain of consequences to our actions. And I think that would be something any academic uh, in the humanities, the social sciences, uh, Anybody could get be behind that. Right. So, uh, yeah, that is an idea that came to me. And uh, yeah. I'm glad you picked up on it because it's. I think it's an important idea. Yeah, I had that, I had that feeling, but I wasn't quite sure what you meant by it, you know? So I thought it'd be nice to get a little elaboration. That's all. Thank you. Know? you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we got on the air, we've been talking and... Uh, Jim, I'm trying to figure where to where the best place to focus. And uh, Jim suggested, and I agreed, it was a great idea. There's something in here called Birthday News, a poemoscope. And this is a 20-plus page poem. And it covers a lot of territory. And why don't you start where you want to start and tell us something about this? Well, uh Sure. Somewhere around 83, 84, I was walking with a poet friend in Rochester, New York. His name was Larry Shampo. He's not writing poetry, by the way, anymore, which is, is fairly disturbing. But it's a reminder that you've got to follow your own path. You just have to, uh, as an artist. Um, but walking down the street one day in Rochester, Larry asked me, hey, did I know anything interesting that happened on the day I was born? I didn't have a clue. Uh, the only thing I knew was that Mickey Mantle of the Yankees had hit a prestigious home run that day. And that was it. So... Uh, I thought, wow, this, this might be a fascinating idea. 
And uh, I started in, in the early 80s collecting any article I might find on what was happening around my birthday uh, and <clears throat> who was alive, what they were doing. And I started to get a picture forming in my mind of the Buddhist idea of the Kala Chakra, which is the wheel of time. And I started to see that my life or anybody's life is really made up of all these other people uh, going, on, uh, going about their business in the, uh, the world. And it's just intersecting the times we were born, which in some ways suggests that they're a relation of ours. And I'll I just want to say later that that point got hammered really powerfully to me in an article that I, that I had read while I was working on this later, like literally 25 years later. This was more like a side project. Mm -hmm. I, had a, I have an artist friend named Mudshark. He lives in Montana. And I was up for his wedding years ago. Uh, it was a kind of wedding party, bachelor party, where they keep handing you drinks and you keep returning them to the to the groom and uh, he drinks them because he doesn't know that you're not drinking. He can't see that you're just switching the glasses or But Mud Shark was a painter, loved, uh, loved everything about painting, but he had this main project that he'd be working on it on his desk. And then he'd have a little scribble pad on, on the side. And he told me that sometimes those scribble pads is when his greatest art showed up. Mm. And it wasn't in the main piece he was focusing on. And that's how birthday news was for me. It was this side project that just never let go. It began in like the early 80s. And it really didn't finish till like 2018. Uh, and I would put it on a side. I I would say, screw this. This is a crazy idea. I'm losing my mind. Uh, but I kept coming back to it because as I was just starting to go with it in the early 2000s, and then around 2016, right around the time Trump took office, I saw an article in the New York Times by a writer named Sam Roberts. And the article was called Different Sides of the Same Mountain. Hmm. And what the guy was proposing was, you have Martin Luther King, for example, on one side of the mountain climbing, doing his work in the world. And on the other side of the mountain, you had Bobby Kennedy. Now, Bobby Kennedy was not necessarily working hand in hand with Martin Luther King. In fact, they didn't even really know each other. In fact, Robert Kennedy was uh, like attorney general. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
what the guy was trying to say is that like Charlie, like you and me, like the dead and Bob Dylan, like Allen Ginsberg and uh, uh, Adrian Rich, you know, they're, we're all working up our side of the mountain and we don't necessarily know who the other people are in this mountain that we're climbing, who are also climbing it. So that was speaking to me about diversity, uh, about our different poetry communities today, where we might not have time to read all the people in our own community's work, let alone all the communities who are doing their own work in poetry today. And there are many, and they're way beyond uh, some initial phase. These are broad, important communities with their own history and their own traditions. And yet, I think we're all working together. And that was the thing that appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing is, we don't even know. Yeah. So, so I started to arrange all these people, all these names, all these events going on in the world around the time I was born. I called it birthday news. And uh, can I read a first section yeah, for That's you? a good idea, yeah. Yeah, give people an idea of, of what you're talking about. Excellent. Yeah, so I start off kind of very simply. Uh, four line stanzas throughout. Um, but here's how the poem opens up. You get a, an idea of what's going on here. Yeah. Birthday news. It's the year of the snake, 1953. The year of the first 3D movie, Buana Devil, with Robert Stack. Only 21 whooping cranes alive in the world. Louis Armstrong plays Carnegie Hall. Transistorized hearing aids are introduced. Picasso, exhibition in Rome. Jim Thorpe dies. Mickey Mantle hits towering 565 foot home run. Pope Pius XII approves psychoanalysis. Merce Cunningham, 33, creates his own dance company. Federal budget deficit hits peacetime high. Drought in Midwest worsens. Number of pizzerias grows to over 15,000. Fellini makes Vitelloni, Kurosawa, Seven Samurai, Bergman, Sawdust and Tinsel. Kellogg's Sugar Smack cereal is 56% sugar. Meteorologists begin giving women's names to hurricanes. Tornadoes in Michigan and Massachusetts killed 350. Korean armistice signed at Pajmanjung. UN study shows Finns 99% literate. Eisenhower gets food poisoning. The Department of Justice will not permit Charlie Chaplin to re-enter the U.S. 
At 29, James Baldwin publishes Go Tell It on the Mountain, then moves to Paris to escape prejudice against blacks and homosexuals. Miss Marianne Craig Moore wins the gold medal for poetry from the National Institute of Arts and Letters. Non-fat, dry milk, crystals, process, discovered. Hot water urged in washing nylons. So you get, you get an idea of uh, somewhat the random, uh, but consociative or intersecting things going on in our lives. Like in my case, around my life, what was going on when I uh, opened my eyes, took my first breath. Oh, it's, it's just wild. And, and by the way, the, the book, people, other people don't know this, the book has over a hundred pages of notes to the poems. So in case you had never heard of someone who was mentioned it just now, like maybe Merce Cunningham, he'll be told to you in a note what he, who he was and what his, what his deal was. And in fact, we even looked up their birth and date, death dates. It's just, just incredible. And, and the, the poem, the, the whole book is just full of things. Look, you got stuff I don't know, and I'm always impressed. Not that I know everything, but I've run into a lot of stuff over the years. But I, I never knew the first 3D movie. I did not know that, I got to say. Uh, and you just drop that kind of thing in there all the time. And to me, that's just a treat. It's just interesting. And, you know, you sit here and you're ready to just go Google stuff and see what the hell is this about? This thing that was mentioned, this person, what is it? And you just learn more about all of our backgrounds. Well, and <laughs> it's and this piece began with before computers. So, uh, yeah. So everything was hard copy, and I would clip. I would just tear things out of here and there, and I put them in an oatmeal can, and I just stuffed them in there uh, because <laughs> then the hard part would become actually typing this stuff out, uh, seeing, uh, sequencing it like you would a good album of songs or a good book of poems. Uh, and so in a way, Burroughs got into the act because there was a certain cut up element of just putting things together. Yeah. Um, yeah, the juxtapositions. The juxtapositions of, of the, all this factual material. But again, uh, it, it's, to remind, uh, it's to remind ourselves, uh, first and foremost, how we're really not alone in this world on many levels. Uh, and I know that that was a big thing for me coming up as a poet. Uh, it seemed like such a lonely profession or... Uh, the writer in his loft, uh, it wasn't out in the world. Yeah. But in this way, this kind of poem is way out there in the world. Uh, and yeah. it's bringing it in. Um, can I read a little bit more from sure. a different section? People get a little different ideas on yeah. what we're bringing in here. Um, so this is a little later. 
begins like this. Eleanor Roosevelt in her McCall's column, if you ask me, answers a question about whether a person with a fatal illness should know the truth. Congress is reviving the Federal Lobbying Act. After an 11 year comprehensive gutting and rebuilding of the interior of the White House, Harry Truman reveals black eye from walking into a new door. Fred Allen guests on Jack Benny programs 60 hours after I was born. The 100th anniversary of Vincent Van Gogh is celebrated with controversy over the discovery of a Gauguin copy of Painter of an Actor. J. Fred Muggs, a one-year-old chimpanzee on the Today Show, is offered a ride by a lady in her limousine. Teenagers ask, do people stop loving each other when they get married? Alice Haynes, a blind Virginia poultry farmer, develops a method of tractor plowing in ever-decreasing circles, still in use today. In Ciudad Juarez, two pickpockets kneeling in a church rob Andres Quinones of his wallet and $13 as he prays. The two are arrested by a police officer kneeling behind him. So, yeah, that's another just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about getting out in the world, I was thinking, uh, I kind of imagine a lot of the world came to you at Naropa when you were there TAing for Ginsburg. Maybe I'm wrong, but to me, it was a big deal when Naropa opened. I was living in Milwaukee at the time. In fact, the guy I knew went out there for a, for a session of, I think he was copying over Ginsburg's journals. I think that was one of the assignments people had. Oh, and yeah. uh, I was just thinking a lot of the world might come, came to you at that stage. Or is that right? <laughs> to this day, I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> um, but I'd have to agree with you. It was... It was the most vibrant poetry scene I'd ever seen before or since. Um, it was a lot of, it was a lot of passing on the torch energy at work, I think behind it. Mm -hmm. um, the beats were in their fifties, more or less. Yeah. Um, to us today, we're older than they were when uh, they opened Jack Kerouac's School of Disembodied Poetics. But I'm telling you, you could sleep in in the morning, uh, but you wouldn't get home from the after parties that came after these insanely uh, mind-blowing poetry readings after incredibly lively panels, uh, arguments, uh, lectures, uh, and 
you know, by 82, the school put on the Kerouac conference uh, and that brought together people from across uh, popular culture. And the primary thing about it was the beats and their associates were important figures in the politics, in the culture. And so a lot of that transmission was happening there. A whole lot. I'd like to say everybody who's at a writing program anywhere on earth uh, gets the same things that I did and maybe that you did, Charlie, but I sort of think I got something that, for one thing, kept me writing, hmm. you know, for 40 years yeah. afterwards, as if this was the stream of consciousness I was living in and I was uh, traveling down. Yeah. Yeah. It had to be incredible. Uh, people like Corso. Gregory Corso, Philip Whalen, and Waldman, Allen Ginsberg, who of course was the big attraction. Um, you had the great women writers of the New York School, Alice Notley, you had Bernadette Mayer. Uh, people were coming and teaching uh, in eclectic ways, not particularly straight up academic ways, not particularly with test, uh, not particularly, I remember my first class with Ann Waldman where she turned me on to Frank O'Hara. And Frank O'Hara was like a major blast of, uh, of poetry, of what poetry could do, what it could say, uh, how you could say it, how you could say anything. Mm. Um, and I was over at the University of Colorado at Boulder taking classes in the Romantics and uh, taking classes in James Joyce seminars and Shakespeare. But I go over to an Europa class and the response that uh, students are giving from reading a poem are like, wow. I mean, that was, that yeah. was all you needed at Europa was just to basically be alive. You didn't have to be a critical analyst, you know? Uh, it just was a place to discover poetry. A crazy place. Yeah. Um, so I think um, maybe I'll do a third little section. Okay. And uh, well, that'll probably do us. That'll do us. Yeah, okay. so. time's uh, going so fast. I can't believe it, but I guess I have to believe my watch. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, but we're not in a hurry. Well, this is a little later in birthday news. Yeah. Millions of people visit the Palace Depression, a building made of junk by George Daner, located in Vinland, New Jersey. Hmm. It is one year since Winnie Judd, the daughter of a minister writes a letter recalling a 26-year-old secretary, her arrival at Union Station in Los Angeles on 18 October 1931 by train from Phoenix, 
accompanied by two trunks and several valises. When a baggage man notices what appears to be blood dripping from one trunk, he asks her to open it. Mrs. Judd says she does not have the key and makes her getaway in a car driven by her brother, Burton McKinnell. After tracing the car from the license plate inside, the larger trunk detectives find the body of Agnes Ann Leroy, 32. What they find in the smaller trunk catapults the case into headlines around the country. It contains the remains of Hedvig Samuelson, 24. Her body neatly cut into three pieces to make it easier to pack. A few days later, a valise left behind is found to contain a fourth body section. Stu Kid Unger is born, a professional card shark who won Binion's Horseshoe World Series of Poker three times and earned millions gambling. He will be found dead in the Oasis Motel on the Las Vegas Strip with $800 in his pocket at age 43. Giles Perlin is attending one of his 797 consecutive University of Southern California football games. Having begun to compile his remarkable streak in 1926, the super fan will die during the second half of the 1998 UCLA-USC rivalry game in the Rose Bowl parking lot. So I'll just say one last one. Yeah. Carl Perkins marries Valda Kreider and decides to work full-time as a musician. He will go on tour as Elvis Presley's opening act, where he will compose a song about a new article of clothing, the blue suede shoe. Bob Dylan will say in his memory that the Carl Perkins sound was the sound of freedom. All right. Finish it off with Carl Perkins, <laughs> who is less well-known than he should be by now, I'm sure. Indeed. But he did the blue suede shoes before Elvis. All right. Well, just, this is great. Folks, you get the idea. This is a very interesting book of poetry, and it's just full of, of all kinds of interesting references that connects us, connects everything for god's sake i mean this poem certainly just about does you just go from one thing to the next i love it and and there's the notes in the back for those who are easily lost in, in the myriad of of names from the past so uh as, as i as i mentioned to jim before we start there are too many books or is it poems that end with a uh, a line which 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 song ends with bo diddley you can't judge a book looking at the cover <laughs> thanks for having me on it's been great thanks a lot jim all right charlie i'm charlie rossiter you are listening to poetry spoken here with our feature jim Cohn. come to us from colorado enlightening us on poetry and things cultural and even naropa institute be with us next time to let poetry speak to you You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. 
I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. And now I'd like to tell you about a, a very interesting book I came across recently. It's called The Power of the Storm. Indigenous Voices, Visions, and Determination. Gathered and edited by Mara Jo Moore. And this book is dedicated to John Trudell, who is a poet, activist, musician. And the title comes from a statement from Trudell. Every human being is a raindrop. And when enough of the raindrops become clear and coherent, they then become the power of the storm. The book is dedicated to John. And here's what Mary Jo Moore, the compiler, has to say about it. This is not an academic compilation. It's an anthology by the people for the people. Gathered here are a flow of voices sharing what it means to be indigenous in this world, past, present, and future. Visions depicting the beauty and strength of indigenous people and hardcore determination woven carefully into all essays, poems, lyrics, photographs, and artwork. Yes, there's some lovely artwork in this, in this literary book, and that uh, I appreciate it greatly. Now, who is John Trudell? Well, he was a dedicated and charismatic leader of the American Indian Movement, and that was founded back in the late 1960s. He was very active in his early years and was a major part of the occupation of Alcatraz Island. If you don't know this history, there were places around the country where indigenous people were occupying vacant government land. And they were at Alcatraz for quite some time, at least, I think, a year, maybe more. And John was a major voice for that group. They had a radio program, and he was one of the major voices on the radio program. Gave him quite a name, and in the end, when they were going to leave Alcatraz, he was a major part of the negotiations with the U.S. government. Among the themes and the issues addressed in this book, I especially appreciate that space is given to the contemporary tragedy of missing and murdered indigenous women. That's M-M-I-W. You can look that up and get a lot of information. It's quite sad. It is something that is still going on today, and it is not getting nearly the attention that it deserves. In a recent report from the Urban Indian Health Institute, there was a statement from the U.S. Department of Justice saying the murder rate of Native women is 10 times higher than the national average. That's 10 times higher than the national average. So uh, I'm going to read a poem. That's where I'm going to take our sample poem from, the section that talks about murdered and missing indigenous women. The Girls Left for Gone by Jaden Dykeman. Crimson handprints over our mouths calling out to the lost spirits the hue of blood the only color ghosts see. No one sees the dark complexions, the sorrowful faces of the women and children as we watch our sisters go missing. 
pushed to the side and forced into silence, history repeats itself once again. Stand now, sisters. The time for silence is never. Speak to the ancestor warriors through the bloodied handprint upon our mouths, an image you may see sometimes online, an indigenous woman with a outline of a red hand painted across her mouth, her face. And it's, it's quite dramatic, and it's a perfect symbol of what's going on in this situation, uh, trying, to cloak, trying to not acknowledge a tragedy, basically. So if you're interested in uh, learning more about contemporary issues and ongoing issues with the Native American community, I can definitely suggest to you The Power of the Storm, edited by Mara Jo Moore, M-O-O-R-E. We are going to close with a little bit of music with John Trudell. Another thing that he was very successful at is doing poetry with music, and he didn't turn his poems into songs. He recites the poetry. And what's a little different about the way John does it is he's got a flat-out rock and roll band going with him. But the songs, though the musical productions, let's say, include indigenous-style musical chanting and other kinds of things like that, along with him reciting the poems. Meanwhile, in the background, you get some pretty bad guitar work. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a real treat to hear, and of course, you can go to YouTube and hear him if you like, and his albums are available. So that's what I've got to tell you about the power of the storm. I hope you'll look into it. It's something that if you don't acquire this book, you might think your library should have it because it's important information and important perspectives that it'd be great if more people became aware of. I'm Charlie Rossiter. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. John Trudell takes us out, and I hope you'll be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. One does not sell the earth to people walk upon. We are the land. How do we sell our mother? How do we sell the stars? How do we sell the air? Crazy horse, we hear what you say.